last few weeks, we've been working through this crazy, strange little story of Habakkuk, a man living a few years before God's people were to go into captivity, according to God's plan. And according to God's plan, he was going to use a wicked, disgusting, awful group of people called the Chaldeans to accomplish his purpose, which makes no sense to those who follow the Lord, including Habakkuk. He goes, what in the world, God, are you doing? This makes no sense. Things seem to be going the wrong way. We're not going in the right way. We're going down a hill. We're going away from God. The world seems to be a mess. But God gave five woes specifically directed at the Chaldeans, though they also applied to God's people, that they would receive their reward because of their actions that their persistent rejection of God would only take them further from the presence of God and there needed to be repentance. Now, at this point in the story, it would have been very easy. It would be very easy to look at this story and go, it's all bad. It's all bad. Everything's bad. Must well just go eat worms somewhere and die, right? It's over. It'd be easy to focus on the coming attacks. It'd be easy to focus on the destruction that's coming. It'd be easy to face and think of this and it's just over. But Habakkuk has one more big question to which we find an answer in his book. And we're going to spend about three Sundays in chapter 3 to look at this because there's a lot of stuff here, including our memory verse that we've been working on. But the question, the question, the, the question he's asking is this. When things go bad, what's the right way to respond? When things don't go the way you would hope they'd go, what do you do? Some people respond with anger. Well, they get mad. They'll break things. They'll tear things up. They'll try to destroy. Some just get dejected and find a corner somewhere and hide out and and, and turn inward. Others let a root of bitterness settle in their souls. And they begin to just be ugly, nasty, disgusting life. Some will say, God, it's all your fault. I'm going to blame you, God. But the prophet Habakkuk models for us a a better way, a better path, I believe. And he does something that many of us don't even think about in the middle of a trial. He sings. He sings. Did, Did you know that there's a psalm not in the psalms? There's a psalm in Habakkuk. That's chapter 3. It's all structured as a a very uh, tightly woven poem set to music. Now you're going, what's the tune? Can I tell you something? We don't know. We do have indications of what kind of tune it would have been. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But he sets together a poem as a response. Now, I don't know about you. When I was in English classes in high school and in college, the worst thing an English teacher could say to me was, your next assignment is to write a poem. Did you know that they were, am I the only one? I mean, I just, I was just thinking, oh, that's not me. I hate that. But if you've had to do it, and I have, and I won't share with you any of my poetry because uh, it wouldn't bless your soul. But anyway, it's something you can't just dash off, can you? You've got to sit down and think it through. You've got to consider the words. You've got to think about how the meter is going to go and how this, the rhythm is going to be in it and what the thought is and what are the illusions you're going to put in there and all this crazy English stuff. I got an English major for a daughter, so you know I got to be careful how I criticize them. But that's what they do. A lot of work. 
And what the prophet does here, and we're going to kind of break it down over three weeks of sermons, is to look at this response. I think the right response. How do you respond to hard times? What do you do in the midst of this? And we're going to see some amazing things that happens to Habakkuk as they are preparing to face this destruction. So we're going to pick up in verses 1 and 2, the first part, and then we're going to look at the rest uh, as we work through it. But look at verse 1. It says this, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. I think the first thing that he's telling us in this this part of the, the passage is this, that we have to praise God because why? He's still God. He's still God. Even if things are hard, even if things are tough, even if we're facing destruction, if we're facing just a, a difficult season, he opens this prayer, this poem, with a strange word that scholars have debated for years. Put the text back up there so they can see it again. It's the word shigianoth. Now, I've, I've, I want you to know that I'm not entirely certain that's the correct pronunciation of that word, but anytime you find a word like this in the Bible, you just dive into it and say it with confidence, and you come off okay, all right? I think that's how it's said, but I do know this. Scholars have debated this word, trying to understand. Usually when a word's not translated into English, it's because they don't know exactly how to translate it, and so they just leave it in the form it is. And you look at this, but most scholars agree that this is most likely a chaotic, erratic form of music that reflects the tenor of the times. I was talking with one of our, our secretaries in the office about this, and she goes, so it's kind of like rap music. And I go, yeah, not quite. Or heavy metal. I said, not quite, but it is, it has a dissonance to it. It has a, a tension to it, a uh, but, but the idea behind it is this. They're trying to communicate what they're going through. They're in a situation where things are eh, tight. There's a dissonance in life. There's a, a tension in life. And that's what he's trying to help them understand. Uh, many scholars believe that he wrote this as a song that they would not only sing then, but they would sing when they were in captivity to remind them of how good God is as they went through this season of hardship. Uh, we know there's unhealthy ways to respond. I think what he does is come with a contemplated, orderly response. And a big part of this is to prepare them for this song they would sing. It seems the description here indicates a dark, dark, somber, erratic tune. It would be one of those things that once it got stuck in your head, it would be like an earworm that just never gets out of your mind. You just It keeps popping up and again and again and again. So the first part of the response is this. We need to praise God. Why? Because he's still here. And he's still God. Though things seem tar- dark, though things seem difficult, though things seem to be headed in the wrong direction, though things, things seem to be coming difficult, God's still God. Aren't you glad? God's still God. Oh, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. This, here's a guy who grew up, I think, in the shadow of the temple. He, he grew up right there in Jerusalem or very close to it. He had heard the stories all of his life of how God had worked, of how God had moved, how God had been amazing in the nation's history. He'd heard the goodness of God. And even though the world in which he was living was becoming exponentially harder and difficult and more difficult, God was still God. I don't know about you, I find it encouragement of that. There's a story told of an English missionary, a guy named Alan Gardner. He was shipwrecked in 1851 along with some other survivors uh, on the, on, at, a, at a small remote island off the 
tip of South America, so way down at the bottom of the planet. And these castaways, while they're there, they began to die of starvation. It wasn't a place that people came by very often. One died after another, and as far as they could tell, this Alan Gardner was the last one left alive. He was a Christian. And he kept a journal, which they found after they died, of his experiences and what he wrote and how he was there. He was reflecting on Scripture. And when their bodies were discovered, they found the journal next to his deceased body. And the last entry in the journal was a reflection on Psalm 34, verse 10, that says, The young, young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. All alone in this battle between life and death, he meditated on a passage, and the last thing he wrote in his journal was basically this, I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Wow. Here was a man dying of starvation, far from home. He was alone. His body was broken, no hope. Yet his last words were this, how he was overwhelmed by the goodness of God. When a person has their heart and mind set on God, let me tell you something. The externals don't disappear. The trials don't disappear. The struggles don't disappear. But God is in the midst of it all, and we can face the next step. Number two, never forget our God is powerful. Let's read those verses again. The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. A second area where the prophet writes words of encouragement is to say this. Don't forget our God is what? Powerful. He's not weak. As the people of God are facing judgment from God by the hands of the evil Chaldeans, it would have been easy to say, uh, God, you don't seem to have this. You don't seem to be handling this real well. I don't think you have any power. But the idea behind this phrase is that God's power has been and always will be, and it will never fail. See, God had sent to his people prophet after prophet, called them back to repentance, says, come back to me, come back to me. Occasionally they would repent, and they would get better for a while, and then they would be like a pig running to the slop again, back into the mess. And then God would call them out, and they'd come out, and they'd go back to their mess again. God's power was going to allow a season of judgment, of pain, of trials, but that wasn't going to happen because God didn't love his people. It was going to happen because he loved his people. It's kind of like a parent disciplining their child. We discipline our child because we don't love them, right? No, we discipline them because we love them and we want the best for them. That's what God was about to do with his people. But his power is not dependent on our response. It's not even dependent on our obedience. God's power remains. Third thing I want you to see. In every circumstance, God is merciful. Right there at the end of verse 2, it says, In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk calls for the praise of God because he's still God. He is reminded that God's powerful. Then he adds this reminder for us in the middle of struggles. We can call out for what? For God's mercy. I suspect here we begin to see a realization by the prophet that the real problem is not the Chaldeans, but it's the people of God. 
They've lived with a flippant attitude toward God. They've acted as if they're invincible and unable to be defeated. They think they can always win, but they have not been living correctly. Their poor choices brought about the destruction they faced. And even with what they were facing, God's mercy remains. Yeah, they're going to have to endure hardship. Yes, they're going to face much pain. Yes, they're going to have to experience trials. But in God's mercy, it would remain. He tells them, I'm here. God was still with them, even as judgment came. And at times, the most merciful thing that could happen is God's correction to get us back on the right path. Fourth, thankfully... God's timing is right. Now let me remind you of the context. Here we've got a group of people who have lived in the promised land, the land that God had set apart for them. They came and possessed it in the days of Joshua as they came into the promised land and possessed. They've lived in the land for close to a thousand years at this point, and God is about to let them go into captivity as correction. And you think, how could that be right? God's timing is always right. Look at verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. Selah. Selah means just to stop and contemplate what was just said. God came from where? He was in the what? Now, you and I look at that, that sentence and go, got no reference. That's understandable. But the thought is this. God is going to, his praise is set forth. He says, now I want you to remember what God has done. Regardless of what's going on in life right now, the path forward is to always do what? To praise God. To understand his timing is right. You know, we have short memories when it comes to God sometimes. We forget all the things that God has done in our past. We think, why isn't God working now? Uh, how about stopping and thinking about what he did at Teman and at Mount Paran? And you're going, huh? Think about what he's done in your past. Uh, when we resume this series, we're going to dig deeply into this verse following down through most of the chapter. It's, it's actually a recollection of what God has done. It's a, um, a theophany. There's a new word you can add to your theological dictionary. It just means it's a, a place where God shows up, a theophany. God arrives. But for today, I want you to see this. There's a reminder of God's mighty actions, beginning with a realization that this, God's time is God's time. And God's time is not our time. God works in the time he wants to work, in the ways he wants to work, in the areas he's going to work, and we just have to join him where he is. The people of God living in Judah have allowed themselves to become complacent towards God. Instead of living with anticipation, God, what's next? Where are you going to move next? What's your next direction for us? They had begun to say, we just want safety. We just want security. And their relationship had become stale and dry. But they also believe there's no way that God would let them fail. Guess what? We never let them fall. Guess what? Timon and Paran are simply references to places where God had worked in the people's past as they came out of Egypt. Uh, it would be something akin to me saying, 
Do you remember D-Day? Do you remember December 7th? Do you remember September 11th? Those are words I can just give you those short phrases and there's all kinds of imagery that comes to your mind because you've experienced or you've heard about or you've read these stories. That's the same thing with the people in Habakkuk's day. He says, God, you've worked in our past. And Habakkuk wants them to remember that God's timing is right. He moves when he moves and he accomplishes what he's going to accomplish. Number five, we also need to realize God's splendor covers the earth. In addition to his time being times, they need to remember that God's splendor, his grandeur covers the earth. And some of you know I, I, I have a, a love for history, a love for geography. And I remember as a kid reading about places like the Grand Canyon. It's all pictures of them. Or Yellowstone. Or the Grand Tetons. Or New York Harbor with the Statue of Liberty standing there. It wasn't until I got older that I got to go to some of those places. Have you stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and thought, oh, wow. The books didn't really do it justice, did it? The pictures didn't really capture the, the size of it. There's photos out there and all these things. What I want you to understand is our planet is covered in the splendor of God. He is everywhere and in everything and available to see, be seen on whatever we do. And it's difficult to imagine this world without the presence of God. But try for a moment. His splendor causes the planet to support life. His splendor gives beauty in nature. His splendor lives in the lives of the creation. And his splendor is revealed in his love for you and me. He's driving us to consider the presence of God. He's everywhere. What the people of God don't understand is they had a mindset that says God only shows up in our land and in our temple and our place. And what they're going to find out through the captivity is that even in trial and struggle and difficulty, God is right there with them. He doesn't leave them. They're going to sense his leading even if they don't like his direction. And he would be in their trials. So, hallelujah. God is going to be praised forever. The earth will be full of his praise. It looked like the lives of the people of God in his day. You'd look at it and you'd go, well, there's not much good going on. Things are not going well. The nations are attacking. People are destroying. They're getting ready to face a difficult season. They really would really just have safety and security. They just want to have it all to stay the way it is. They want the status quo. But the reality of praise is much broader than just people who live on this planet. You see, while the people of God... Or far from God, there were still voices praising God. Now, I don't want to get too esoteric here this morning, but you know, you and me as humans are not the only ones who get to praise God. You remember when Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt, and uh, people were lined up on the streets praising what's going on, praising Jesus. They believed he was Messiah. They got it right. Do you remember what the Pharisees said in that moment? Hey, tell your disciples to quit praising. They're not supposed to praise you. You remember Jesus' response? He said this, if you tell the, I tell you, if these were silent, 
the stones would cry out. You know, our creation cries out to our holy God in worship. And listen, if you won't do it and I won't do it, they will. The world will praise God. The planet will. God will be praised forever. He created you and me for worship, but if we want worship, worship's still going to happen. He created you and me for, work, for praise, but if we won't praise God, he's still going to be praised. So what do we do with this? Real quick, three things, and you get your hamburger. What a deal. Number one, remember God is always with us. You go, I know that, Patrick. You don't have to tell me that. I know he's always with me. I think sometimes we forget he's always with us. I think sometimes we start living our lives and get so focused on the things that we're going to do and the activities we're involved in and the places we're going to go and the things we're going to do that we miss. God's right here. When I think about the ugliness of the people of God in Habakkuk's day, I'm disturbed. See, I have the hindsight of of history. I can look back and I know what happened to them. People were going to be killed. Worship center was going to be destroyed. The nation was going to be plundered. Walls were going to be torn down. Citizens are going to carry it into captivity. It weren't going to be good. Y'all with me? And it would have been easy for them to believe, God, you don't care about us anymore. God, I think you've forgotten about us. Remember, those things were coming to lead them to repentance. It's like a loving father who cares enough to correct his wayward child. God was at work. His heart was for his kids. God's heart is for you. He's always with you. Even if you haven't met him yet, he's with you, calling you, encouraging you to follow him. The writer Romans said this, What then shall we say? To these things. If God is for us, who could be against us? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have hope. He loves you completely. Number two, refuse to become complacent. Now, that's easier said than done because we as humans have a really honed skill in complacency. In fact, if I had to put that on a job description for myself, very good at complacency. I don't know if that gets you hired or not, but all of us have got this one. We allow ourselves to settle for complacency. When was the last time you went on a diet? You go, uh, oh, yeah, I got a little complacent in the middle of that one. How about with your health, getting up and moving around and walking some, exercise, complacent? How about spiritual disciplines? We can become complacent, don't we? I suspect the biggest threat to our spiritual lives is found in our tendency to complacency. Man, we'll start out fast. We really committed. We're going. We're going to do it. Here it goes. We grow. And then we hit a plateau and we start looking around going, hey, I've made some progress. And what do we start doing? We start putting down the tent stakes and setting up the camp. And we're going to stay right here. God doesn't want us to stay right here. He wants us to keep moving forward. We can appreciate the past, and we surely need to enjoy and serve in the present, but we need to also be people who say, I'm not going to get stuck here. I'm going to keep going. A huge part of our spiritual development is saying daily, I'm going to press on with the Lord. Like Paul said and asked of the Philippians, he said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you pressing on toward the goal? Are you moving forward? I remember Sarah was a year and a half old. 
Heather had a, a meeting to go to, and my mom and dad invited us to go out to, to Colorado and do some four-wheel drive running up in the mountains. And so Sarah and I were going to fly together. Now, I'm the daddy, not the mama, okay? You know, but I, I, I got her on the plane. And she wasn't big enough to have her own seat, so she had to sit in my lap. And our first, first flight was from Indianapolis all the way to Cincinnati. Uh, it's a 12-minute flight, by the way, to connect to a real plane to fly to Denver. And as we're sitting there, and she's in my lap, and she's looking at me, and in the plane, you know, you know that feeling when you take off, that, that, that cool feeling when you take off? She looked at, my, looked at me in the face and says, Daddy, more! She wanted to do that again. And I said, don't wait, just wait, baby. We're going to do it again in a minute. Almost a minute, yeah, literally. And she just loved it. But isn't that just a great description of what our calling in life as Christians should be? Is that we wake up every morning saying, God, more. I want more of you. I want more of who you are. I want more of what you're about. I want to be more. I don't want to become complacent. I want to move forward. You say, well, I'm old and tired. I'm getting there, folks. But I want more. I want more of God. Third, recognize something. Recognize the power of God. Children of God falsely held the belief that they were in charge. They said, hey, God, you've given us the land. You've given us the temple. You've given us the Ark of the Covenant. You've given us all this. We are the bosses of the world. They believed they could do their own thing, but also be in the center of God's will. And they believed they could worship safety and security Plus God. But can I tell you something? God doesn't share the lead role with anybody, including yourself. And God, though, is such a gentleman that if you say, oh, I'm going to do it myself, I'm going to run it myself, he'll say, okay, go for it. Go ahead. But I've got to ask you, do you really think, do you honestly think you can do better at guiding your life than God? Is it actually possible that we could do a better job than God? I know I can't. I'm reminded of the words of John when he sought to encourage a group of churches facing trials in the first century. He said, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, those around them who are attacking. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I think sometimes we forget that, don't we? We think, well, my God's as good as your God. I've got to tell you something. The God of the Bible, the God that we worship as followers of Jesus, is not equivalent to any other God on planet Earth. He is way better and way more powerful. And he is right here with us. See, the moment God saves you, he places in you a powerful, loving, Holy Spirit that he's going to guide you. And then we make a conscious decision that says, I'm going to lean into your leading. I'm going to follow you. So when things get tough, when things get hard, what do you do? Run to Jesus. Well, maybe you haven't met Jesus. Today's the day. Maybe you need to do that today. We want to give you an opportunity to come forward and talk to someone about salvation, how to trust him. Maybe you need to make a decision in some other area. Maybe you need to commit to a local body of believers because you know Jesus, but you need to be accountable to others. Maybe that's your decision today. Maybe there's something else that God's leading you to do. Whatever he says, say yes. Father God, we thank you 
for the opportunity to be together and to worship this morning, to look at your word, to let your word speak into our hearts. Father, the reality is every one of us is going to face trials and struggles in life. None of us are exempt. So we have to decide how are we going to respond. How are we going to respond when those things come? Do we get angry? Do we get bitter? Do we get upset? Do we become destructive? Or do we run to Jesus? Father, I pray that we would be people who run to Jesus. We pray for those who have decisions they need to make today. Let them do that in your time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.